why do we sleep? That is still a, a big mystery. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who loves to knit, and as we move into <laughs> the fall months, really coming into the prime time of your year, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. How's it going, Kaylee? Oh my gosh, I'm really well, thanks. You know, I've actually recently taken it <laughs> to the next level of my love of wool and animal fibers. A friend of mine just gifted me with a alpaca fleece, like a bag full of alpaca fleece. <laughs> and I <laughs> drove it six hours out of the city to one of the only mill that will spin it up for me. And right now I'm thinking of what am I going to mix it with? Am I going to mix it with Romney or Merino or silk? I mean, I'm having girl, a real time. You've transported me to the 1900s, like early 1900s, girl. <laughs> Rakeem, you have no idea. Last summer I bought a spinning wheel. Oh my Lord. <laughs> it's 150 years old. I have an instant urge to read Jane Austen. I don't know why that's happened. <laughs> so we've just transported you to the past, but right now we're going to bring you right back to the present because today... We are chatting with Rakib Tesfaye. That is who you just heard. Rakib is a PhD candidate in the Integrated Program of Neuroscience at McGill University, the founder of Broad Science, an internationally recognized initiative dedicated to making science inclusive, engaging, and intersectional through podcasting. And on top of all of that, Rakib is also a freelance science communicator. Rakeem, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thank you. This is a great way to spend my Sunday. I love it. This is fun. We're going to talk all about science. I hope this first question isn't too basic, but what is sleep? What's this thing that I do every single day? You know, I, I hope we're all getting some of it. Uh, I know these are hard times to, to be sleeping well, but it's it's an, it's an altered state of consciousness. You know, I, I always find it funny, like when I was taking courses on, on sleep during my undergraduate degree, we learned about how earlier on, like before the 1950s, people thought that our brains literally just like shut down while we were sleeping. Like it was an incredibly passive process, right? But that's really not true. Our, our brains are very much active and doing amazing things. Uh, and with like the advances of electrophysiology and brain imaging, we're able to get a better understanding of the different brain stages that occur during sleep, the different activities that are, are crucial for our well-being, physical, emotional being um, during sleep. But, you know, when you ask that question, like, what is sleep? Or more importantly, like, why do we sleep? That's not a basic question because we still don't know why we sleep. We, we know primary benefits to why we sleep. We've studied the different functions of sleep, but like really at its core, like why do we sleep? That is still a big mystery. And, and there are many theories that have been proposed. So yeah, that's definitely not a basic question, Kaylee. So if, how important is sleep for our brains? How much sleep should we be getting? And what does that sleep allow us to do? Mm, okay, so great questions, but there are multiple questions in there. So I'm going to try to see which one. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I get so excited. No, 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 no. It's all, you get equally excited about sleep as I do. So this is like amazing. I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy about it. So yes, sleep is important for the brain just generally. So I mean, if you going back to what I said earlier on, there are a few theories as to why we sleep or why sleep is important. So there are kind of older theories that are more to do with adaptation and evolution. So one is that like inactivity at night is a survival function, right? So like if animals stay quiet or still during the night, maybe they're less vulnerable or have an advantage to be alive longer and, and not be preyed upon. Or, you know, if you sleep during the same time as other predators or predators that will prey on you, uh, that you will have an advantage. Another one is conservation of energy. So you're not expending as much energy when you are sleeping. So you can conserve that for during the times when you are awake. But going back to your point about why it's important for brain function, one of the leading theories for why sleep is so needed is brain plasticity and, and 
in order for us to structure and organize our brains. It's also important for learning and memory consolidation. So I'm thinking about particularly in, in infancy, right? We get a clearer picture of this. So infants spend about, I think it's like around 14 hours sleeping. Oh, jealous. Right? I know. Take me back. And, and half of that is spent in a particular stage of sleep, which is called rapid eye movement sleep. And this is what some researchers believe is incredibly important for brain development and memory and learning. So yeah, it is it is important in short. <laughs> and then I just want to talk about briefly another leading theory is of why we sleep is restoration. So being able to restore and repair and rejuvenate our bodies. So we know that when there's extreme sleep deprivation, and you see this in rats, dogs, humans, flies, we we die. I mean, it's serious. And so, you know, when there is extreme sleep deprivation, there's damage to our neuronal cells, there's damage to our metabolic systems, we, le we lose immune function. And so sleep is incredibly important to keeping us healthy and to keeping us cognitively sharp as well. You know what that made me think of? A talk that I went to once <laughs> in my master's, sitting in the back row and physically not being able to stay awake, pinching myself, trying to stay awake and nodding off and then like pretending to nod along with the talk <laughs> somehow, like very aggressively. And so how am I not able to control that? Yeah, I mean, so when you don't have enough of it, there's definitely an, a buildup of pressure to go to sleep, right? And so that actually ties into the two different processes that we currently understand regulate sleep. So the first is homeostatic pressure. And that is, like I mentioned, that buildup of needing to go to sleep, like the longer that you're awake, right? And so that's kind of what you're talking about, Kaylee. Mm -hmm. And then the second is, is a system that I study more in my research, and it's called the circadian rhythm. So we have a biological rhythm, the circadian rhythm, <laughs> and it controls the, the timing of when we go to sleep and when we're awake. Um, it does a lot more than that. But for the context of this chat, I'll, I'll stick to sleep. And this rhythm, it fluctuates, it rises and it dips for about a 24 hour period. And so these dips correspond to different times during the day. So uh, for instance, our circadian rhythm dips around 1 around 1 p.m., like after lunch, it's kind of called this like post-lunch crash. I don't know if you've ever felt a little tired after you've you've eaten. Yeah. And then there's another dip, I think it's around 2 a.m. So needless to say, there are these rhythms. And those rhythms are produced by a master clock in our brain. And that clock, it receives cues from our environment. So the environmental cues help synchronize our circadian rhythms. So these are cues like the main one, exposure to light right? So when it's sunlight, that's the time cue that we should be awake. Mm. And, and there, there are other cues that influence our circadian rhythm. So that when we socialize, for instance, when we exercise, when we eat, and thinking about that in the context of today, those are all routines that have kind of been maybe shifted in day-to-day -day life during the pandemic, right? And those anchors that allowed us to keep track of time are really important. And now that we don't have those anchors and those routines fixed as we normally do, you know, that can cause us to have these altered perceptions of time. Like, I don't know if I don't know if you two are feeling like you're in Groundhog's Day sometimes or like can't really put a, you know, put your finger on like, what day is it today? You know, that has a lot to do with our circadian rhythms right now and needing those routines. Yeah, that reminds me of how challenging it is sometimes when I work in the planetarium and I'm in there all day under the fake stars. And if it's summertime and I come out and it's sunlight, you know, my circadian rhythms are all jumbled up yeah. and it's... It's very, very confusing for my brain to like try to figure out what time is, what's going on here. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's so mind blowing to me to like how salient these cues are, especially light. So Rakeep, here's another really basic question for you. 
how exactly do you study sleep? Andy Warhol made this film in the 1960s. I don't know if you've seen it called Sleep. And it's literally just six hours of someone sleeping. So are you all just avant-garde voyeurs? How does this happen? Oh, I remember hearing about that when I was in elementary, not elementary, in high school. I'm being like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so not to that extent, I would say. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, so there are two different methods of observing and recording sleep. There is self-report or self-monitoring through questionnaires, and then there's objective measures. So just briefly, when I talk about self-reporting, this is typical because it's kind of the easiest way to get sleep information. So this would be, let's say, um, I'm trying to figure out if you have some concerning traits with regards to insomnia. So things like are you having troubles falling asleep? Are you waking up during the night? Uh, you would get a questionnaire asking you, uh, how many times a night would you say that you wake up? Um, or how long does it take you to get to bed? Uh, and we, we often, with my the studies that I do with kiddos, we often have parents fill out these questionnaires. But you can imagine how there might be limitations to this type of reporting. So what happens if the parent is not in the room to witness some of the night awakenings? Or, you know, there are cases where individuals believe that they're waking up more often during the night than they actually are. So there are, yeah, there are, there are limitations to this type of reporting. And then on the other hand, we have more objective measures of sleep reporting. So one being actigraphy, so actigraphy kind of looks like a Fitbit. It's it's a watch that you wear and it records your movement. You can wear it throughout the day or you can just wear it right before you go to bed. And there's an algorithm that lets us know when someone is sleeping, when they're waking up during the night. We even have sensors for lights on our actigraphy. So one of my favorite things, like back in the day when I was doing my master's um, on sleep in pre-adolescence and adolescence, um, I would see that they would tell me on their sleep diaries that I went to bed exactly at 11 p.m. And then I would see that they have their lights shut off at 11 p.m. And then like a few minutes later, they would turn their lights on. And I'm like, girl, you've just lied to me. <laughs> <laughs> I see your lights are on. Wait, and does that, that picks up like room light or would it even pick up something like a cell phone, cell phone light? Ooh, that's a really good question. I actually don't know how sensitive those sensors are. Um, in this case, it was definitely uh, room light. And so I confirmed that qualitatively while speaking to the, <laughs> while speaking to the teenager. But that's a good question. I'm not sure how sensitive those sensors are. And then the last way, and I'm, you know, apologies if I've missed some something, but these are the the, the major ways of, of observing sleep is polysomnography. And this is referred to as the gold standard of monitoring sleep. So polysomnography allows us to measure brain activity during sleep. Uh, this is using the electroencephalogram. I always that word always trips me up. It's EEG. Me too. Right? It's it's a mouthful. Science words. God. So yeah, it essentially allows us to measure um, your brain activity during sleep, but also different muscle movements. So we're able to get a measure of your eye movements, your leg movements during sleep. So you're hooked up to a bunch of electrodes, um, a bunch of physiological monitors there. And that really is the kind of the gold standard of us getting all that sleep information, but it's hard. I mean, especially working in youth research, getting children to to put all of that on and to sleep in the lab for one or two nights, like it's really difficult. And so that's why the default has usually been to start off with a questionnaire. So Rakeep, you're monitoring me, you've got your cameras on me, you've got the questionnaires. Now, the other uh, aspect of this is uh, sleep disturbance. And I'm a really deep sleeper and I live on a really busy street. Other people though, have a really hard time with that. And your work brings together genetics and sleep data to better understand sleep disturbance. Is there evidence that our sleep is linked to our genetics? Like, does this mean that some people genetically need more sleep than others? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a great question. So I should, should have mentioned when I was explaining about our biological clock earlier on, and so that 
master clock I was talking about is housed in our suprachiasmatic nucleus. Speaking of scientific words. <laughs> I, 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 again, I, I can only apologize for something that I have not created, but, you know, it, the, the SCN. And so essentially that, that master clock is regulated by a group of clock genes. It's called clock genes. <laughs> Get it? Because master yeah. clock. <laughs> Timing. <laughs> Love it. And those, those genes, those genes mechanisms actually won the researchers who found them uh, won the Nobel Prize a few few years back for their study on fruit flies. And so, yes, our genes do regulate sleep. Um, so beyond that core clock gene network that I'm talking about, there are many different genes that have been implicated in different types of sleep disturbances. So, you know, when we talk about sleep, it's really important to to break it down to what are we actually talking about? Because you can say I'm a good sleeper or a bad sleeper, but we got to be a bit more nuanced than that. Are we waking up during the night? Are we having troubles falling asleep during the night? Are we having muscle movements during the night? Um, There's a whole bunch of different types of sleep disturbances that map on to different genes. And so I'm interested in the circadian or the, the clock network that I spoke about but also there have been some really interesting studies that have been ongoing. I don't know when the first one was, but like the biggest sleep gene study that has occurred to date was in 2019 where the results were published, where they looked at 1.3 million adults. That's wild. Which is like a massive, massive study. And they wanted to know what genes are related to insomnia traits. And they found that variations within over 956 genes are linked to insomnia. Whoa. So, like, what is that telling us, right? Like, so there isn't necessarily one sleep gene, right? Like, we, you know, we're going to have to get a better understanding of how they interact with one another, the different types of genes that are involved. But that tells us that there's also a huge environmental aspect to how we sleep. So there's definitely a balance between genes and the environment infecting how we sleep. So to answer your question in short, genes do play a massive role in sleep. Those core clock genes regulate our core functioning of sleep and sleep timing, but the likelihood that you're going to find people who have a whole clock gene knocked out is <laughs> quite unlikely because they have a huge evolutionary purpose, but there are many genes besides these networks that play a role in sleep. And, and we're still trying to figure that out and how they interact with one another. That's actually way more than I would have expected, like 900 and some. That's a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I when I read it at first, trying to figure out my thesis proposal, I was like, well, what is this going to do for me? Yeah. 956 <laughs> <Yeah>. genes. <laughs> like, where, where, do I, where do I go from here? But what I find what's really, really interesting about that study is a lot of the variations within the genes that they found actually also associate with psychiatric issues. Mm. You know, psychiatric issues like anxiety, depression. And, and so they're they're correlated with one another, these genes that are involved with both sleep disturbance and mental health issues. And to me, that makes a lot of sense in that, you know, genes might be doing many different things. And might not just be responsible for one type of trait mm -hmm. and have different effects, large, small, or maybe none, depending on if another gene isn't mutated, right? So I think it goes to show how interconnected sleep is with other mental health, uh, physical health issues. We know that in with psychiatric issues, whether it is neurodevelopmental disorders like autism or ADHD or neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or anxiety and depression, as I spoke about, sleep disturbance is often a precursor to a lot of these disorders or often goes hand in hand with a lot of these disorders. So I think, you know, we're trying to parse out what exactly genes do when it comes to sleep disturbance, but I don't think we're going to be able to understand it without understanding their role in both sleep and psychiatric issues. So maybe if we take a shift now, so you, you brought up earlier sleep disturbance in youth with autism, which is where you do quite a bit of your work and your PhD. And 
you are specifically looking at those underlying factors that contribute to sleep disturbance in youth with autism. And I didn't realize that youth with autism actually experience greater sleep disturbance. So could you tell us a little bit about that work? How much do youth with autism experience sleep disturbance and what have you found? Yeah, absolutely. So it's one of the main issues actually that is reported in autism is is problems with sleep and particularly problems with falling asleep, problems with um, waking up during the night and having shorter sleep. So a lot of those traits map onto insomnia. And in the literature currently, the prevalence is up to 80% of youth have uh, sleep disturbance. Um, So it is, it's a major issue. It is not very well studied academically in our field, but also it tends to not be treated or focused as much in, in a clinical setting. There tends to be less focus on these sleep issues because, of course, there are other uh, major issues that need to be attended to when it comes to the to the disorder. And so it's often taken a backseat to many of the other physical and mental health traits that occur alongside the autism diagnosis. So how can youth improve their sleep? Like, Are there therapies, supplements? I've heard some buzz around melatonin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one thing I want to preface this by saying is that sleep is very inter-individual. <laughs> and I, I don't think we hear that enough. What works for someone might not work for another person right? And the amount of sleep that we get and that is good for us might not be good for our partner or our brother or a sister, right? So, you know, that's something that we need to think about when we talk about treatment. But generally what we do know is that, yes, melatonin has been effective for many youth with autism, looking at the literature and, and, and kind of synthesizing what's already out there. It has been shown to improve um, certain disturbances like being able to fall asleep and lessening night awakenings. But what has really been shown to work (laughs) is good sleep habits and sleep routine and hygiene. So having a sleep routine is really crucial. Being able to turn off your phone before, you know, an hour before you go to bed, being able to, you know, have a routine that you're, that you're telling your brain, hey, I'm getting ready for bed right now and you should be too, (laughs) right? You know, reading that book, a a signifier that it's time to go to bed. There's, you know, a host of different really great sleep routine and hygiene tips that are out there. And I'm happy to pass along to you, uh, Kaylee and and Michael, if anyone wants to read them. But yeah, it's just developing a good sleep routine is, is crucial. And also, in addition to medication, if needed, and if you go see a specialist, a clinician, We know that cognitive behavioral therapy, so talking about maybe what are some of the stressors that might be causing you to not go to bed at night and other different kind of behavioral steps that you walk through during that therapy is um, important as well. So again, it really depends on what the sleep issue is, who that person is, and um, yeah. So we've talked about genetics and how it may impact sleep and increased sleep disturbance among youth with autism. So how are you bringing these together in your research? You know, one, I'm interested in what are the long-term impacts of sleep disturbance on daily outcomes and cognition, but I'm also interested in why, right? What, like, why do we see this increased risk of sleep problems in, in this population? We know that genetics plays a large role in the etiology of autism, that there are different types of mutation that increase risk in autism. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, it makes sense to start looking into genetics to try to understand, um, is there something within our biology? Is there something that is not functioning correctly in our genes that might be contributing to sleep problems in autism? So if we identify those, like let's say we go in and we say, okay, there are five genes with mutations. Of those 900, (laughs) there are five that are specifically affected. What what can that tell us? Here's the thing. I don't think that's going to happen. So there, there isn't an autism gene. To date, there are hundreds of genes that have been impacted, uh, that have been implicated rather with autism risk. And you know, similarly to, to what we were talking about with those 956 genes, you know, there are many genes that serve similar functions right. or that work together 
to produce a trait. So, you know, what I'm starting to become more interested in are what are the pathways, the kind of the more umbrella pathways that might be uh, implicated in sleep disturbance and autism? What are the what are the overlaps between those pathways? Uh, or, you know, maybe there are a specific set of genes with a type of biological implications that we should be looking at. So I don't think that there's going to be one smoking gun of a gene that is going to be able to, you know, kind of elucidate why this is happening. But I think when we start looking at the pathway level, the more broader levels and the overlaps, then that's when we can maybe get more fruitful information. And then of course, pairing that and contextualizing that with the environment, behavior, cognition, like, you know, so it's, it's a massive puzzle. Should we get to some nerd herd questions? Bring on those nerd herd questions. Why is the sky What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon based? Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. So if you want to get in on the nerd herd questions, we do post the questions on our Instagram and on our Facebook stories at Nerd Night YVR. And our first question, uh, well, we got some good response on the sleep questions during this pandemic. Kebby commented that they have had a hard time getting to sleep before 6 a.m. Lorenda has noticed that her dreams have been more vivid lately. What's going on here, Rakeep? Is there a neuroscience explanation for this? Yes. So a lot of people are having troubles with sleep during this time. So I just want to stress that this is not like, this is quite normal. You know, there have been studies that um, are coming out, one particularly in China, that showed people are having more symptoms of insomnia during this time. And this tends to be a bit more salient in folks who are nearer to the outbreak of the pandemic in the Hubei region. But the, the question was having much more vivid dreams, if I'm correct, right? That's what you said? Yeah. Yeah, so this actually tends to happen when you're sleep deprived and you don't get enough of REM sleep, which Hmm. I talked about a little earlier on. Rapid eye movement sleep is the stage of sleep uh, where you, you have your dreams. So when you don't have enough sleep, you tend to the next day take less time getting to that REM stage and you spend more time there. And you have more vivid dreams. This is what's been documented in previous studies. So this is what's called REM rebound. Um, and so sleep deprivation studies have found that if you do are not getting enough sleep, the next night when you try to get enough of that sleep, you will have more vivid dreams. I shouldn't say you will have more vivid dreams, but it's more likely that you will. That's really interesting. So oh, we know we talked a little bit earlier about the sort of the individual component of sleep. We're all individuals. We have different sleep patterns. Petrie asks if it's a myth that we need all our sleep in one eight-hour block. So that's a really good question. Okay. So when you're a baby, you don't sleep in in a complete chunk of time, right? You don't sleep throughout the entire night. You sleep in segments throughout the day, right? And then later on, you're entrained to social cues to have a bedtime and a wake up time and so on and so forth. So actually, no, I mean, segmenting sleep is not like unheard of and not (laughs) uncommon, actually. So in the pre-industrial ages, um, and you can look at some of the literature, there is mentions of having sleep one and sleep two, right? Like people having multiple segmented uh, sleeps and, you know, they would wake up during the night and they would, I don't know, read or smoke or do night deeds, whatever you do during the night. (laughs) Night (laughs) deeds. Talking about some night deeds. (laughs) And for those who are listening, I mean sex. Um, But... gosh, what's wrong with me? I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, this biphasic sleep is, 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 is evident in our biology and some people naturally prefer it. And again, this is not my area of expertise. And, and so I, I, I don't want to like, you know, spend too much time because I don't really know it that well. But researchers have mentioned that if this is something that you prefer, 
you should do it. If you are healthy and you're happy doing it and you want to sleep in like two different chunks, two different segments, then that's okay. There isn't really a lot of sleep studies to show the health impacts of this. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's not uncommon. People have done it. I will say that what is really hard about this method of sleeping is that it's not aligned with the way that we live our lives socially. And so you know, if you have, <laughs> if you have some type of like cool work hours where you can do that, then I guess, you know, go for it. But um, it really isn't aligned with our social kind of cues and our social life cycle. Uh, and speaking of the environment, so talking about this eight hours thing, uh, Promote asks why some animals get by on barely any sleep while he's completely non-functional if he doesn't get those eight hours. So how do we compare with other animals in the uh, animal kingdom? All right. Great question, Promote. Um, so yeah, animals do differ in sleep. I mean, giraffes can sleep for like five minutes a day. I what? mean, they, they honestly, <laughs> yeah, they honestly can go two weeks without sleep. That's bonkers. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then on the opposite side of that spectrum, you have bats who sleep for like 19 hours a day, right? Like mm -hmm. They sleep for the entire day. So one potential theory is the brain metabolism rate of animals might have something to do with this. So thinking about like, how much energy does the brain consume? Smaller animals who have higher rates of brain metabolism, they tend to need more sleep, while larger animals, so thinking about like, cows and elephants generally you know they need less sleep um so you know thinking like land land grazing animals like things like cows right they spend most of their day eating <laughs> and they have like less time mm -hmm. for sleep <laughs> i mean also just like thinking about that poor giraffe like you're so massive i wouldn't want to sleep you're you're just like open <laughs> open prey season <laughs> oh my gosh that's a good point right yeah <laughs> i would be on alert all the time the sleep of animals so so cool. I I want to take another course on this, but some birds sleep with one eye open and researchers have found this is like especially true if they're on the outside of their group and like not within their flock protecting them. Oh. Like they sleep with one eye just to make sure that there are no preys, there's no prey like approaching. Um, so yeah, I mean, animals do have different sleep timing and different durations of sleep. And yeah, there, I think there are many theories as to why. Oh man, is it time to nerd out? Bring on the nerd outs. What you nerdin' about? about? Alright, so we'd love to hear from you about what you have been nerding out about. You can email us, Vancouver at nerdnight.com. You can also message us on our socials at nerdnightyvr. And Russ has let us know that he's nerding out about the Life on Venus story that just came out. Rakib, how is the neuroscience community reacting to this Venus story? I mean, I really am not that good with understanding astronomy or planets. You and me both. You know, I, I think it's exciting. Every, every time I hear life on X planet, I immediately just like think of every single Hollywood movie, which I know is like the least scientific thing for, for me to be thinking about. But I, I mean, it's, it's exciting. Actually, what I am most excited about with this story is I think people get a little disappointed, like in the general public, when you're like, you have this big story about life on Mars, but you're talking about what, what was it called again? It was um, phosphine, phosphine, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, what is what's phosphine? Is that a human? <laughs> and then you hear more about like, well, we don't know how phosphine is created. What we've been able to do is figure out that it hasn't been chemically created or you know, that it might have, it might be biologically created or something along those lines. And I think what this is spurring is this dialogue as to how mm -hmm. we approach scientific questions, which is by like not proving a theory, but like disproving certain theories, right? So I think the dialogue when it comes to the story is really exciting because mm -hmm. folks are like, well, what are you telling me? Like, why do I, like, why do I find this fascinating? And you're like, no, we've been able to deduce some things that we have not. And we've mm -hmm. been able to like, say that certain things aren't happening, which we haven't been able to say before. And this allows us to continue on with our investigations. Um, and I think that that dialogue is really exciting to me. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly the conversation that we've been having on our lives. We go weekly to YouTube about around this. And even the, the big questions, that's what it comes down to. Like we're talking about dark matter and scientists make these big inroads. What they're doing is basically just discounting one area. Like, okay, we know dark matter is not this. We know it's not this. And that's exciting to scientists, but as science communicators, sometimes it's a bit challenging to get people excited. It's not this! <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> we haven't found anything! <laughs> Uh, Rakeem, what have you been nerding out about? Oh, God, that's a great question. I've been nerding out about everything from the great coffee that I'm drinking to the great books that I'm reading. But I've been really excited about starting my own CBC science column. <laughs> yeah, which is really, really cool. So I just basically get to do what I do at home by myself, which is talk about science um, and nerd out. Which is pretty much the best time. I just actually listened to your CBC episode and you were talking about blue jeans and like threads found in the Arctic. It was incredible. Yeah, just like science is cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I just came across this study by uh, researchers in the University of Toronto who found that these little small like microfiber threads, these like millimeter pieces of fabric fall off your jeans, end up in the water through like washing them in your washing machine or being picked up by air. And then they are like landing in the Arctic. So like pieces of things that you have bought are being found in the Arctic. And I, I mean, obviously has major implications for um, how we study our environmental impact. But like, who thinks about studying this? Like, how do you, how do you study this? It's just really cool. And like, just to hear like the stories of how this research came about, like completely accidentally, like they had a bunch of uh, sediment like segments from different lakes and, and Arctic Ocean. And they just were like, what is this blue piece of fabric that we're finding? And then they decided to research it. I mean, <laughs> that to me is, that's what I want to talk about when it comes to science is, you know, those those types of findings that we don't necessarily hear about. So you just had your first episode and you're going to be on every month, correct? Yeah, every month. And it's really great because I definitely um, have a bit of editorial flexibility in terms of what we get to talk about. So again, emphasizing these stories of science, um, highlighting graduate student researchers, I think is incredibly important. We are the backbone of scientific research. And oftentimes when you read about these discoveries, you often hear from the PI, who is incredibly important, obviously, but the graduate students often get left out of that kind of mainstream conversation. Um, and I really want to be able to highlight the incredible work that they're doing and also just trying to talk about like solution-based stuff as well so like what can we be doing I mean we're living in a time where I think we feel really helpless and like have lost this sense of agency in during isolation and I think it's really important to talk about like what are some things that we can be doing in our everyday lives um, right now that can definitely impact us, the people around us, and also our environment. So those are some stories that I'll be focusing on. Well, we're really excited to hear more about those. Michael, have you been nerding out about your own personal impact lately? Like what's what's going on with you? What are you nerding out about? Well, I am nerding out about my identity, Kaylee. So tonight, as we record this, I'm going to be hosting drag artists Chandelier and Camilla Barr in an online discussion around identity in the universe. And it's going to be taking a look at some seminal years around school because kids are going back to school and kids going back to school is a time when we start to form our identity. This event is going to be over by the time this podcast is released. But what I want to say is that as we move into another quarter of this pandemic, and it's now looming very large, that there is going to be a sector of society that is not going to come back for quite a while. And that is live performing arts. And the thing is that there are some things that can adapt, like sports that make money from live audiences and assure a lot of society is getting by in other forms of entertainment like Netflix and books, and, and we can get by. But there are some institutions that are really suffering right now, and it's the artists themselves, the performing artists, they are losing their identity, not having a chance to, to perform in front of a live audience and to express themselves in front of a live audience. And that's concerning because we're also losing out on you know the young people 
people, the new breed of performing artists, you know, like, sure, there's TikTok and that's gaining popularity, but those are like little tiny bite-sized expressions. And I, I don't think it's enough for kids to fully express themselves uh, in a new way. And it certainly helped me in my development as a human to express myself in front of a crowd of people. So what I'll say to everyone listening is that what we can do right now is to support these artists that have no outlet. I mean, we're talking about drag artists, there's comedians, theater performers, but it's also the technicians, the producers, the people that live for creating these live experiences to make us laugh, to make us cry. You know, it's not just about giving them money. It's about showing appreciation for them. So when you see that they're doing live streams, you know, theater companies are doing live streams. These institutions are going to be so badly damaged and some of them are not going to come back. So the least we can do right now is to give them love and support as we move in to these colder months. Oh, I love that. Yes, 100%. All the emoji hands are up. <laughs> I mean, that's one upside now. I guess we can use a lot of emoji hands. I, I think you're right, Michael. I think that link to identity and how that changes is is so important. And I love that the message is like, get out and support, even if you're supporting from your living room. Exactly. You know, like, and that's, that's what we do it for. I mean, sometimes we, a lot of these artists, they don't do it for money, but they do it because it's part of who they are. And mm -hmm. can you imagine if you couldn't be part of who you are? And it's just seems really sad to me. Yeah. So Kaylee, uh, what is something that is something that is part of you that you've been nerding out about? I, I've got a lot of things that are about me. Uh, but I, I think the thing that I've been nerding out about lately that I'd love to talk about is actually a paper that I found through you, Rakib. So maybe we could chat a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, especially, but communicating science is really important. There are many ways to communicate science, but one way scientists do this is by sharing their papers on social media, like through Twitter. And there's a recently published study in PLOS Biology, where doctors Carlson and Harris look at preprints shared on Twitter and who's engaging with them. So for folks who are not familiar with preprints, these are essentially studies that are published online before they've undergone peer review by other scientists in that field. And they haven't yet been published in a scientific journal. So to determine who is engaging with these preprints, they looked at Twitter bios and the, the bios of the folks in the networks of those people sharing and, and talking about those articles. So for example, if you read my bio, they would determine that I was an academic and they'd also know that I'm like real into rats and also science communication. So they could glean those things from just my Twitter bio. And then based on those bios, the overarching finding was that most of these preprints shared on Twitter are actually tweeted about and shared by other scientists. Did that surprise you, Rakeem? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, if you just, you know, if you break it down and you say, I'm going to share preprints on social media in order to engage a general audience. I mean, just that sentence alone, right? It's like, <laughs> no, you, I mean, obviously it is imperative that we make articles accessible to whomever wants it, particularly because our scientific research is funded by taxpayers. Yeah. So I, I do believe that that information should be made accessible. And if it can be found on social media, then I think that it's wonderful and it's great. But I think that if you are going to be using preprints as a way of engaging folks who are not in your discipline, then there are some issues with that. And this is not to tell people to not be sharing these preprints <laughs> on social media, on Twitter specifically. The most amount of scientists on social media are found on Twitter. I don't think that the paper looked to see whether or not engagement was coming from scientists from the same discipline, or if there was any other disciplines that were like kind of also interested in a, a preprint paper. So I'm not sure if there was any kind of cross-discipline engagement that was going on, which would be interesting to see. But I definitely think that it does allow for more engagement and more dialogue with researchers that you're not necessarily connected to. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, especially for advancing a field. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about engagement with the community, I think first and foremost, what you need to know is what does the community want? Yeah. What, what is the expected outcomes or what can be the most beneficial outcome for your community when it comes to your research? And I think that this is something that you need to have a dialogue about with that community. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, using your findings, whether it's in a preprint or a published paper, and formatting that in a way that is digestible and accessible. So whether that's in, I, I don't know, it could be like a comic book. Or it could be in a, in a podcast or a video or a, a talk. I mean, so 
while I find that that paper was really cool and used really amazing, like kind of big data techniques there, I, I did not find that particularly uh, novel or surprising. I don't know if we want to talk about another finding. Oh, that yeah, we're okay. going to get into it. All right. All right. So the first one, I'm, I'm on board with you. I'm like, not surprised. And you know, this is important work and I'm, I'm interested to know that. And I think that's exactly it is like, what's your, what's your intended impact? If your impact is just to engage with other scientists, then that's great. But one of the really interesting things that this paper points out, and this is something that you shared about that paper, is that the study also looked at how people with different political affiliations engage with preprints. And so based off those brief Twitter bios, the authors find that preprints on topics such as ecology and science communication receive a lot of engagement from left-leaning folks. And like, nobody can see me raising my hand right now, but like, hey, it me. It's also her left hand. (laughs) (laughs) But other areas of research, such as genetics, neuroscience and animal behavior have high engagement rates among audiences with far right views, including white nationalism. And Rakib, you're a neuroscientist who works with genetic data. I was wondering what your take on this is. Did that surprise you? (sighs) Again, not surprising. (laughs) For most of us in the Twitter world, we have seen, particularly of late, seen discussions about misinterpretations and just a lack of understanding of how to use race-based data in neuroscience and genetics. I mean, I think it's very clear that there are some researchers who are are still not defining race as a social construct, Mm -hmm. right? Or, Or when we look at the implications of race, what we're actually looking at are the implications of racism, right? And, And so I think even before we talk about who is engaging with this research, I think it's really important. And I think this is a prime time right now, given amidst all of the conversations and protests that are ongoing, to be reflecting within our own disciplines, how are we including marginalized folks within our research, Mm -hmm. especially given that genetics and neuroscience have an awful awful history of perpetuating and creating really tools of oppression for these communities. So I think first and foremost, we need to start having those conversations within academia. So with that paper, in talking about networks of white nationalists being more engaged with genetics and neuroscience and kind of bringing it back to theories of eugenics and fitness and natural selection and all these things that I would rather not talk about on a Sunday. But (laughs) I think what the authors brought up were very interesting. So the authors who produced this work, their intention is not to support these ideologies. But here we are having audiences interpret them in a way that suits, let's say, you know, their beliefs and their ideologies. What do we do as a community? And most scientists are afraid to engage with these conversations online. They're afraid to engage with these groups online. And so one, we know that that is incredibly harmful because it allows this misinformation to continue to spread. And we know from studies that have been done recently that misinformation, disinformation spreads really quickly. I think it was an MIT study that found that misinformation on Twitter spreads 70% more than information that has been verified and fact-checked. I mean, that's wild, right? So we do have a responsibility as researchers to be raising and flagging concerns of how our our, our research Mm -hmm. is interpreted and being discussed. But also something that is very interesting and something I'm happy that the authors flagged is that social scientists have been studying the way that white supremacists and white nationalists talk about science studies. So Aaron Panofsky, Dr. Aaron Panofsky, I believe, uh, is a social scientist at UCLA who has studied how white supremacists who take 23andMe tests, uh, those direct-to-consumer tests, um, getting back their results, mm-hmm. a lot of them are like finding that they're they're not 100% white, they're not 100% European ancestry. And, you know, they're one, they're like, uh, what does this mean about me, right? They're, they're, they're trying to, they're grappling with this idea that they might not be 100% pure. And 
they're discussing it in ways that can be nuanced. So what he's finding is that they don't necessarily not understand genetic testing and kind of the mechanics behind um, how you get a result, but they're using it in a way to justify their beliefs. They're using it in a way to say like, okay, one example, I I haven't read the study in a long time, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not getting this 100% correct, but I believe one of the ways that they have been able to validate uh, what they're getting is, the results rather, is, okay, well, uh, a lot of us had to go and colonize these places. And so naturally, like, we were victims of like attacks. And so these are badges of pride that our ancestors have had to wear in order it, for their sacrifices in order to give us the this land that is rightfully ours and to give us this world that is rightfully ours. And I'm just like really kind of ugh, awful, awful <laughs> interpretations. It's like a lot of mental gymnastics you have to go through to get there. Right, exactly. But it's not to say that they need more information about how genetics works, right? So it's a bit more nuanced than just saying like, oh, okay, they don't understand it. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think I love that point in the paper where they say to be able to then engage as a scientist and correct some of that misinformation can actually be incredibly beneficial and helps prevent that spread of misinformation. And then also understanding that these things are misinterpreted from the meaning of the scientists, but are taken towards a political gain. And also we need to be addressing. Absolutely. And, and again, it just highlights the need for more interdisciplinary collaborations with social scientists. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when we, not I think, <laughs> I know, <laughs> a lot of times when this work is done, especially with uh, large genetic studies that social scientists aren't often involved or historians aren't often involved. And so this needs to broaden our discussions and our understanding of like, how do we interpret these studies that have, yes, biological implications, but they have social and political implications as well. And so we need to yeah. be able to have all these expertise involved in order to present these results in an ethical way. I totally agree. I think that's a really great point. And I I think the other thing that really stands out to me, one of the takeaways is that if you're still thinking that science is removed from politics, may I submit to you <laughs> Exhibit A? I mean, even, even the very statement, right, of it not being political is a political statement. And maybe I'd like to wrap up this nerd out. If you're interested in this conversation, it's such a, a brief one, I highly recommend the two-part broad science episode called The Social Life of DNA. You need to go listen to it after this. Thank you so much. Oh, that, you're awesome. Yeah, cheers, guys. This has been really, really fun. And uh, we did that episode a few, a few years ago, but I think it is, it's, it's a conversation that I think is going to persist for a long time. Yeah, thank you so much, Rakeem, for hanging out with us uh, this Sunday morning. People want to learn more about your new work with the CBC. Where should people go? Um, yeah, so on Twitter, I am at Rakeem T. Um, I'm sure you can find the spelling of my name in the show notes. And I think that's pretty much it. Thank you, Rakeem. This is so fun. Thank you also everybody who listened. Uh, if you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at Nerd Night YVR. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And until next time, turn down the lights, turn off that phone, and get yourself some good sleep habits. Uh -huh.